Well, greetings to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm so delighted and honored uh, to be here with you today. I have uh, looked forward to this time. I was so thankful to Pastor Don when he called me uh, a few weeks ago explaining to me his situation and being gone and asked me to come. And so I'm so, so very thankful. Uh, So greetings to you today. And uh, also on behalf of the Solid Rock Baptist Church, we want to also say greetings to you as well. Also, I want to say to you how much I admire uh, your pastor, Pastor Don, over the last few years. As a matter of fact, ever since Don and Marty left here, uh, which, by the way, your loss has certainly been our gain, and uh, we are thankful for them. But since that moment, uh, I was able to engage in conversation with Pastor Don from then until now, and we have just become wonderful friends. He is a trusted counselor. Uh, There have been several times where I have called him and asked for advice, and also we just talk regularly uh, just as friends. And so I'm very thankful for a co-laborer, a a brother like him, uh, to take the stands that he does. And what I want to exhort you to today concerning your pastor is follow him faithfully. Listen to him and obey the word of God as he preaches and teaches to you week after week and pours his life into the ministry of the word. This is the call of scripture upon our lives is to listen faithfully to our pastors as they minister the word of God. And I know Brother Don does that in in a very faithful way to you. He's diligent in that that task and I too have profited from his preaching and teaching of the word of God so again it's a delight to be with you and I need the help of the Lord this morning so let's go to the Lord and another word of prayer and then we'll open up God's word father once again we bow in your presence on this wonderful Lord's day that you have graciously given to us and Lord we're thankful today to be able to come together with your people and hear your word today, Father. And I recognize that my position here today is just to be a mouthpiece for your word. And so, Father, I pray that I would fade in the distance and the people here today would only hear a word from you. Lord, we need you today. We need your word. We need you to give us the illumination that the Spirit gives to us as we study to seek to understand the things that have been freely revealed to us here in the sacred scriptures And so, Father, would you be pleased to meet with your people today and to help us, uh, to give us illumination, to give us understanding so that we would better know who you are. And, And, Father, so that we could take the things that are revealed to us and that we would live them out in the practical areas of our life day to day as we seek to give glory and honor to your great name and as we seek to exalt the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the culture in which we live. Father, I pray for Truth Community Church this morning. I pray, Father, that you would continue to make this place a very fruitful place for the preaching and the teaching and the fruitfulness of the word. Father, we pray that it would sound forth from here across the globe. And so, Father, continue to use them. I also pray this morning for Solid Rock Baptist Church, Lord, as the other elders are taking care of the service there today. And, Father, for your people all across the world as they've come together on the Lord's day, Father, to worship you corporately and to sing praises and to honor your word with a listening ear. And, Lord, we pray that you would, in fact, give ears to hear the sacred truth today. Be with us now as we study. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, would you open up to the book of Revelation in chapter number four? The book of Revelation this morning in chapter number four. I'm sure you have heard this quote before, but it is one of my favorites and I quote it often and it's from A.W. Tozer. And Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says that the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion 
And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? You know, the problem that we face today is that so many people, their views are so earthbound instead of heaven-bound. And because of that, it keeps so many people ignorant of the one true God. And the fundamental need for our lives and also the lives of those who have yet to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and this great God that we serve, the pressing need of the hour is that God and all of His fullness would be at the very center of our attention. And this is certainly true for several reasons. In the first place, The Bible teaches us that we have been commanded to worship the God of sacred scripture, the one and only true and living God, the creator and the sustainer of all things. And Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14 tells us that it is the whole duty of man to fear God and to keep his commandments. Also, ignorance of God is an obstacle to proper worship. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he dealt with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter number four, he told her that you worship what you do not know. Furthermore, idolatry is the result of ignorance and the suppression of whatever knowledge one may have of God. And the scripture teaches us that God will, in fact, pour out his wrath on all idolaters, In Romans chapter number one, verse 25, the scripture says that they exchanged the truth for a lie. And instead of worshiping the one and only true and living God, they worship the things that this great God has made. In Revelation chapter 21, verse eight, it says, idolaters, their portion will in fact be in the lake of fire. You know, on a very practical note, As a consequence for one's not knowing God as he has revealed himself or of one's rejecting the truth about this great God, one's life will certainly go in, go astray into folly and into absurdity because you can't deal properly with reality without having God as the precondition for all things. Scripture teaches us in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is in fact the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. O parents, may I exhort you today to teach your children a God-fearing worldview. Teach your children that God is the precondition for all things and that they can't know anything as they ought to know it without that lens. We need to teach this truth in our churches and in our families. So you see, we have to have a proper knowledge of God in our minds. We need a fresh apprehension of the revealed divine perfections for proper thinking and for proper living, which according to scripture is in fact for God's glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, verse 31, it says, whatever you do, even in the smallest of things, eating and drinking, it says, do all for the glory of God. In Hosea chapter number four, verse six, and in verse number 14, scripture says that people come to ruin and are destroyed for a lack of knowledge of this one true God. Let's be reminded today that when the knowledge of God departs, the lights go out and darkness comes. In Isaiah chapter number five, verse 13, it says that people go into exile for a lack of knowledge. In Proverbs 1, 29 to 32, if you hate knowledge and the fear of the Lord, it equals destruction. 
And I think all of these things ring true in the times in which we live. And so here we are today on another Lord's Day morning. And what is it that we need? What is the pressing issue of the time? Oh, my friend, we need fresh views and fresh apprehensions of the excellencies of Almighty God. And few texts in the Bible, I believe, give us clearer views of God as the text that is before us today here in Revelation chapter number four. I want us this morning to read this magisterial text. And as we do, let me just say to you today, behold your God, because this is exactly what we are to do today corporately as we've come corporately for worship. It is, in fact, to behold the one and only true and living God. Would you notice with me this morning? Let's take a trip to heaven in Revelation chapter number four, verses one through 11. After this, I looked and Behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The first thing I want you to take note of this morning as we come to our text in verses 1 and 2 is that the Apostle John is given the privilege of seeing into the unseen realm. You'll notice there in verse number one, Scripture says that John saw a door standing open in heaven. And what's happening here is that John is given revelatory privilege. He's being able to see certain things. This is a a gift of, of grace to John. He's seeing into the unseen realm from earth to heaven, as it were. And this is something that was granted to him, the the grace of of sight, the the grace of revelation. And in verse 1, it tells us that John heard a voice like a trumpet telling him to come up so that things could be shown to him while he was there. A door is open. He's told to come up. The voice was the voice that he first heard early on in the book of Revelation. You'll remember perhaps in chapter number 1, verse 10, God's word there says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day 
and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And you come down to verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's a short list, folks. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who is revealing certain things to the apostle John. He's seeing, he's beholding the risen Christ and things are being revealed to John. He says in verse number two that at once he was in the spirit. Perhaps we could think of it from the standpoint that he was spiritually snatched, as it were, by the spirit from the island of Patmos and ushered into the indescribable presence of a holy God. And the text goes on to say that a throne stood in heaven. What is it that's happening to John? He's being ushered in, as it were, into the very throne room of God. He's being given admittance at this particular point in his life. He's there and his focus is directed to this glorious and holy God on his throne. What an amazing privilege that John is given. He's seeing into the unseen realm. And by the way, he's very eager to tell us about what it is that he saw there, which brings me to my next point. Not only John... But through John, we too are given the privilege of having revelation to us through what John saw. There in verse number two, it says, and behold. And from this statement, we learn that John not only sees for himself, but he sees for the purpose of being able to reveal that and to tell that to other people. This word behold, it means to look. It means to pay attention. It means John is saying, I have something that I want to show you. I have something that I want you to gaze at as well. And by the way, it's Jesus who is the one who is giving this revelation as we saw in chapter number one. And so what we should think about today is that Jesus, not just John, but Jesus wants us to see this revelation as well. Isn't that amazing? Perhaps we should stop this morning and say and exhort, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I wonder today, do you have ears to hear the message of the apostle John to the church? So in a sense, brothers and sisters, this is actually Jesus that is revealing these truths to us, saying, behold, and is that not also a grace to us this morning, at this hour, at this time, as we're able to stare into the unseen realm as well? Well, that begs the question, I believe, as we think about John looking into the unseen realm, what is it that he saw? Well, we've already pointed out by way of summary that he saw a holy God on his glorious throne, which by implication means we're supposed to see the same thing, a holy God on his glorious throne. So there it is in general. But more specifically, what is it that John has to say about this vision, about this sight that he's beholding in this particular moment? Well, many, many lessons. And what I want to spend a little time on now is to show you seven things this morning from this chapter that we see from John's revelation of our holy God on his glorious throne. Number one, John's vision shows us the sovereign rule and authority of Almighty God. John's vision shows us the sovereign rule and authority of Almighty God. At once, I was in the spirit and behold, and notice this statement, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. What comes into your mind this morning when you think about a throne? 
Well, all throughout the course of human history, typically a throne has stood as the universal symbol of power, power and authority and rule. The throne stood. John is showing us the ultimate throne and the ultimate ruler who occupies that ultimate throne. He's saying, as it were, that God Almighty is the ultimate ruler of all things. God is the sovereign. God is ultimate. God is the supreme ruler of the universe. And he exercises complete control over all things from his immovable throne. Oh, beloved, comfort yourself today with the reality that God will never, ever be removed from his throne This great God that you worship, this great God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who is also your God through your relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. And because of that, nothing happens by randomness or chance, but rather by design. God is completely in control. He cannot be removed from that position. God exercises his will and his purposes from the throne room of heaven. Jonathan Edwards, in commenting on this, he said, what a vast and uncontrollable dominion hath the Almighty God. The kings of the earth are not worthy of the name, for they're not able to execute their authority and their narrow bounds except by the power and assistance of their subjects. But God rules most absolutely the whole universe by himself. Kings rule, perhaps sometimes for 40 years, but God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and of his dominion there is no end. Well, therefore, may be said to be the blessed and only potentate, king of kings and lord of lords. And so John shows us in the first place that God is the governor of the universe, and there's none who rise above him. He is the sovereign ruler and authoritative sovereign over all things. Now, secondly, would you also notice in verse number three that John's vision shows us the splendor and majesty and the glory of God. And he who sat there, verse number three, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. If you look at this verse, you're forced to consider these precious jewels that are laid forth here. John is seeking to relate to us the brilliance of God Through all of these various uh, colorful jewels, they're meant to show us, as it were, the full spectrum of the glory of Almighty God. Do you know what we mean when we speak of the concept of of glory? When we say the word glory, we're talking about something that has a weightiness to it. I remember when I was a young boy, my father took me to St. Louis to the Napoleon uh, Art Gallery. They were showing all of the paintings of Napoleon and some of his... uh, you know, personal belongings when he was on the earth. And I can remember standing back and looking at these magnificent paintings. Perhaps that's happened to you at a museum and you just stand back in awe of this painting. And it's as if it takes your breath away. It has a weightiness to it. It captures your attention. You're brought into it. And you just stand and you stare there for for a moment because it's having an impact on you. And John is wanting to say that about this glorious God is that he's weighty. There's a glory that radiates from this amazing God. He wants us to feel this weightiness. You understand this, don't you? Think about when dignitaries roll through a town. Perhaps the president, if he were to have his motorcade come through a town, you would see all of the people lining up the streets, waving their American flags, and they they see the president, they see all of the dignitaries getting out of the vehicles, and people, as it were, stand back in somewhat of an amazement. And even earthly rulers... 
And here John is taking us to a place that is far beyond that, to a, a magnificence that is like no other. These stones, the jasper, the carnelian, Sardis stone, and the high priest's breastplate, the jasper represented Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the Sardis or carnelian represented Benjamin, Jacob's lastborn. And so as we're seeing this, this could be an illustration of all the people of God from the first to the last and God on the throne as being in relation to them. Now, I don't know if that's what it means, but I like that. I like it. Certainly the rainbow of emerald, many commentators see this as a reference to the covenant faithfulness of God, the glory of God, the magnificence of God, the splendor, the beauty of God. Whatever the case, John is showing us this is something of magnificence. It's glorious. There's, we run out of words of, to describe what he's talking about. Majesty and brilliance, a, a beauty that's unlike anything that you have ever seen. And certainly when we think of Almighty God, don't we need to have that view of him? Well, in the third place, in verse number four, as John goes on and imagine his breath is already being taken away as he's there in the heavenly seeing all of these sights, John's vision shows us the grace and the kindness of Almighty God. In verse number four, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. There was a number of explanations as to who these elders might be. I think we have to conclude today that most likely they're not angels as angels don't sit on thrones nor are they referred to as elders in Scripture, most likely then we would have to conclude that these are men, specifically redeemed men. Here they are. They're pictured as ruling and reigning with God. And, and Scripture clearly teaches that this is something that's reserved for men. They're clothed in white garments, covered in holiness and purity and righteousness, golden crowns on their heads. They're seeing wearing the victor's crown. You know, I think it's clear. What's the point of this? I think it's clear that these are men, and listen carefully, if they're men who are in the presence of holy God, then they have to be men who have been redeemed by Almighty God. And isn't it true that God has revealed Himself as the one who brings salvation? These men that are referenced here are those who certainly at some point in their life were those who had experienced the salvific grace and the kindness of God or else they would not be there. Oh, and let me just say to you today as well that, my friend, you'll not be there either unless you experience the salvific grace of Almighty God and the redemption that He provides in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll not be in the position that these men were in without that in your life. Without closing with the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll not be ushered into the presence of a holy God. Perhaps we should just pause for a moment and just ask the question today, do you know this Lord Jesus? Have you closed with him? What say you of him? What calculations do you make concerning this Jesus who has been revealed to us in the pages of sacred scripture Do you see him as the lamb who was slain? Do you see him as sacrifice and substitution? Do you see him as the one who has taken your place? Do you see him as the provision of righteousness and payment for your violations of the law of Almighty God? Oh, my friend, perish the thought of being in the presence of Almighty God today without the covering and the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus. I wonder today, do you know him? Do you know this Jesus? Our God is a 
saving God. The kindness and the grace of God. Isn't it amazing when you read the biblical story and you see Adam as he fell into sin? You know, if God had left the human race in that condition in the fall and let men go their way and had never stepped in and had never done anything at all to rescue, he would have done nothing wrong to mankind. Mankind has no claim on the grace of God or else it wouldn't be grace. But this God is gracious, isn't he? That he stepped in to the horrible plight that the amazing grace of an amazing God came to this world in the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem sinners. It's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Well, what John wants us to see again is that God is a God of amazing grace and kindness. And right on the heels of that, lest we get out of balance, John shows us something else about God. You'll notice here in verse number five that John's vision shows us the power and the justice and the comprehensive knowledge of God showing us that his throne is in fact a throne of judgment. You'll see there in verse number five, from the throne came flashes of lightning. Do you see that? And rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Note those statements, lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. You know, I wonder today how many people actually have this view of God. You go out into the culture today and you begin to talk to people about their views of God and you will hear people speak certainly about the love and the compassion of Almighty God, but many people don't have the balance in their mind of God also being a God of justice, a God who must uphold His holy character and, and so John is being shown some things about that here. This, this is very reminiscent of, of Exodus chapter number 20. Do you remember when the people came out of Egypt? In Exodus chapter number 20, verse number 18, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Again, we have to keep the attributes of God in balance in our thinking because not only is God a God of grace and mercy and kindness, but he's also a God of justice and a God of, of power. And we need to make sure that we stay out of the ditch, as it were, on the attributes of God and we keep it right in the middle of the road. In Exodus chapter number 34, you see these things coming together in verse six and seven, perhaps one of the greatest statements in all of Old Testament writings that we have about God. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now listen, God's gonna reveal things about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh, that's wonderful. We love to hear those kinds of statements about God. But there's a but in the text. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. You see, we have to remember that God is a God who's not to be trifled with. Yes, He is a God of grace and compassion and kindness, and 
Most of you today, I'm sure, are here on this Lord's Day to worship this God because you have experienced that reality. But God is also this God of of justice. He's a God who has to satisfy His holy character. And thank the Lord, not only did God give us love, but God also, if we know God, He's also given us justice. It's just that He poured it out on a substitute. God didn't compromise His holy character to let you go free. And aren't you thankful for that? He satisfied it on a a substitute. And now he can welcome you and embrace you out of his love and out of his mercy and out of his kindness. We have to see both of these concepts that he loves, but he's also a God of justice. He's not a God to be trifled with. God is not a God who just winks at sin, but rather, again, his character demands that justice would be carried out. And you mark it down today that this God who is the sovereign ruler of all things and the authority over all things, he does in fact have the right to rule and to judge. Also there in verse number five, John said before the throne there were seven torches, the seven spirits of God. This is a statement that's referring to the Holy Spirit of God in his fullness. Not only does God demonstrate his power and justice and judgment, but he also does this with comprehensive and complete knowledge. I believe this is the thrust of this statement. The point here is that because of God's comprehensive knowledge, because of his completeness, because of his fullness, the point is that nobody is getting away with sin. Oh, beloved, we have to understand today that sin is not something that's just to be swept under the rug. God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He deals with all sin. In the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 32, paragraph 1 It says, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil." You know, I think we should, by application today, take some time and make a sort of a sober reflection upon those statements. God doesn't just wink at sin. God is going to deal with all sin. Later on in the book of Revelation, on that great day of judgment, the apostle John says that he sees the small and the great there before the tribunal of God. The small and the great, the great men of the earth, the mighty men, the men of renown, the the, the great magistrates of the earth, the kings and the queens of the earth, And then also down to the person on the earth, the the, the poorest of the poor, the nobodies of the nobody. Every single person will stand before a holy God to give an accounting for their life. You see, this is a message that needs to be spoken today about this great God. Yes, he is loving, he is kind and is gracious, but he is also powerful and just and has comprehensive knowledge of God. You know, that's a frightening thing to think that God knows every single detail about my life. Everything. He peers. The scripture says he peers in. He sees into the heart. He sees into places where no man sees. Remember in speaking to Samuel, he said, men look at the appearance. They look on the outside, but God sees all the way down into the heart. And as the Lord Jesus Christ, even on the Sermon on the Mount, when he was giving the proper interpretation of the law, The problem was that everybody had made it all about the externals. And Jesus says, oh, no, you've got it all wrong because not just shouldn't you commit adultery, but even if you look with lust, you're guilty before a holy God. Oh, what a frightening thing 
to think that God has such comprehensive knowledge to see every single thing that we have done in thought and in word and in deed and that we will in fact give an account to this great God who is a God of justice. Well, let me move on and show you another thing about Almighty God from this portion of Scripture and that is that John's vision shows us the undisturbed disposition of God. There in verse number six, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. You know, in Isaiah chapter number 57, verse 20 and 21, it's an, it's an amazing portion of Scripture that speaks about the wicked being like the tossing of the sea. Have you read that portion before? It says that it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The, the life of wicked people, it's like the raging of the ocean. It's never peaceful. It's never still. It's always casting up things upon the seashore. If you've been to the beach, you understand that. Perhaps you see all of the muck and the mire that's deposited there upon the beach. And the wicked are like that in, in many regards, as Isaiah says. Always uh, running around on the earth, causing chaos. In the book of Romans, talks about the wicked, how there's destruction and misery in their path. Man is good for that, aren't they? To cause trouble. All the time causing trouble on the earth. But here we see a different picture. We see God. It's not like it is here on earth. In God's situation, the situation in heaven is one of tranquility. It's one of calmness. It's one of peace. It's one of fullness of joy. Can you just imagine today what's taking place in heaven as all of the angels and the saints that are already there Continue in ceaseless praise to Almighty God. And here we are on the Lord's day as a small outcropping of heaven as the corporate community of the saints come together to worship Almighty God. I always love it on the Lord's day how there's such a peace and a joy and a calmness being around the saints of God. Isn't that your experience? Have you ever noticed that the saints at church, perhaps your experience with them is a lot different perhaps than your unconverted boss or coworker at where you work? You don't get treated the same. You don't have the same kind of experiences, but yet you come, you come to be around the people of faith and you experience love and kindness. And there's a peace that washes over. I love the Lord's day. It's just that way for me. It's always a calm and a wonderful day. This is how it is in heaven. The, the sea of glass gives us the image of, of just calmness and, and peace. And although the nations may rage on the earth, and they do, beloved, and the scriptures tell us that they do, the nations are raging even now. Have we even seen the news this week to see how the nations are raging? I like how Paul Washer puts it. He says many times, if things are quiet in the world and nations aren't raging against one another, it's only because they've stopped long enough to reload. And that's true, isn't it? The nations rage, but God doesn't get emotionally imbalanced because of it. There's a calmness about God. God doesn't vex and fret and stew about all of the things that are going on in the world as he sits on his throne. He has an undisturbed disposition. It's a constant disposition of peace and tranquility, and it's stable and firm and steadfast. Oh, my friend, God is not sitting in the heavens right now, wringing his hands, wondering what in the world is he going to do? He has everything under perfect control. I don't know about you and what that does to your own soul, but that gives me a peace and a tranquility in my own heart. And we also, as children of the Father, need to learn to be like him in this regard. 
We need to learn an emotional stability and a stableness in our own dealings in our life with our family, with our children. As, as parents, we need to learn to keep everything in its proper order and keep our emotions in balance and in our relationship with our spouse and with people that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. We need to be the kind of people that when others look at us, they see a person who is a stable person, a pillar, someone that they can go to for, for calm and refuge. You, you don't need to cast your lot in with the wicked and be tossing to and fro and casting up the muck and the mire into the lives of people. You need to be the person that when they come to the beach of your life, you're like that gentle ripple of the water that washes the sand off of their toes and people find refreshment at your life. This this text is teaching this about our God, that he lives in this way with an undisturbed disposition. He doesn't get worked up about things. I believe that's what it's speaking of. I'm not 100% sure that that's the primary meaning of this portion of the text, but surely it's a safe deduction. Well, in the next place, a sixth thing that we see here, John's vision shows us the holiness and the eternal nature of God. What would you notice again there in verse number six? And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, day and night. Now notice this. They never cease to say... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Isn't that amazing? There is this hymn, as it were, that's being spoken and sung in heaven constantly. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These four living creatures, somewhat difficult to identify, but they are certainly created beings, perhaps some kind of of angels, and their sole job is to give unceasing worship and praise to God. These beings, they focus on one essential, one particular thing about God, which summarize who God is. Holy, holy, holy. Have you ever noticed upon your reading of Scripture that the Bible nowhere says God is love, love, love? Or God is merciful, merciful, merciful. Or God is kind, kind, kind. But it says God is holy, holy, holy. Why such an emphasis on this particular statement? Why why would it be this way? Why do they never cease to say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Why is this the refrain of heaven? Well, I don't know if you've thought about it, beloved, but the attribute of God's holiness is the one particular attribute that sets him apart. It is the attribute of attributes. I I like to think of it as if the the holiness of God is an umbrella that goes over all of the other attributes of God. It is the thing that sets him apart. It is the statement. It is the revealed truth to us about who he is that shows us that he is the chiefest of all beings. That there is no other being that's greater or more lofty or more grand than Almighty God. It points to His preeminent nature and helps us to see Him as supreme. It's the sum of all of His attributes. Holiness is the attribute of attributes and all other attributes are mere comments on His holiness, says J.I. Packer. Holiness is the glory of all of God's other attributes. 
When John is looking into heaven, as we mentioned a few moments ago, and he's seeing the glory of God, it is primarily the holiness of God that puts forth the glory and the weightiness of God. And this is the constant refrain of heaven, is his holiness. And also, notice in the second part of the hymn, who was and is and is to come, this is a feature of of God's eternality. We are to see the reality about God that he has no beginning, but he has always been. There never has been a time when God wasn't and there were none before him and therefore no other being who gave God his being. God depends upon no one. He needs no one. He is infinitely happy in his own triune person is the declaration of scripture. Again, Edwards helps us on this truth. He was just the same in all respects from all eternity as he is now. As he was infinite ages before the foundations of the world were laid, so he is now and so he will be with exactly the same glory and happiness, uninterrupted, immovable, and unchangeable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. John Needham and Isaac Watts love uh, Isaac Watts's hymn writing, don't you? If you've never studied much on Isaac Watts, oh, we owe a debt of gratitude to God for this choice servant who has given us so many just glorious hymns. John Needham and Isaac Watts, John Needham on God's holiness says, holy and reverend is the name of our eternal king. Thrice holy Lord, the angels cry, thrice holy, let us sing. And I pray today, even, even looking at this hymn, and we sang it a little while ago, didn't we? Holy, holy, holy that this would have the effect on you throughout the whole of the Lord's day, that you would see the holiness and sing of the holiness of God. And then Isaac Watts on the eternality of God. Great God, how infinite art thou. What worthless worms are we. Let the whole race of creatures bow and pay their praise to thee. Eternity with all its years stands present in thy view. To thee there's nothing old appears. Great God, there's nothing new. Great God, how infinite art thou, what worthless worms are we. Let the whole race of creatures bow and pay their praise to thee. John's vision shows us the holiness and the eternal nature of God. Now in the last place, number seven, John's vision shows us the creative nature of God. Would you notice there in verse number nine? And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, now note this verse, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Here we see that these living creatures, they, they worship. The 24 elders as well fall down and worship Almighty God. Do you see that there again in the text? There's worship that's taking place in, in heaven. And isn't it interesting that true worship of one being spurs on the worship of another? You know, I wonder as we think about our own lives today, are we the kind of people whose genuine worship of Almighty God is contagious? Does our worship of God spread over into the worship of God from other people? It's a good thing for us to think about today. Do we infect other people, as it were, with our worship of God? 
Again, in verse number 11, worthy are you. Why? Because you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. Well, this is the story of the Bible, isn't it? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created everything that exists. God created all things. That's the story of the Bible. Another attribute or, or a feature that makes God the chiefest of all beings is the fact that He is the ultimate creator. God is the one who created all things. And, and as the creator, can't we reason that He also has authority over all things? And everything that he has made is accountable to him. In the very first verse of Genesis, we have this authority accountability structure that has been laid out for us in the word of God. And as the creator, he has the power and he has the prerogative to do as he wills with what he created. God exercises sovereign control. By sovereign decree, he allowed this world to fall into ruin by the sin of man. And it is his choice whether to redeem or to destroy that which is rightfully his and with that, we come to the ultimate lesson of John's vision. Ultimately, the lesson from John's vision is to show us the necessity of our giving praise and honor and glory and worship to God. It is the ultimate priority. In Psalm 89, verse 6, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? Beloved, that should be our refrain today. When we leave this place, as we go about our Lord's day and as we go about our week this week, this should be the disposition of our life. Charles Spurgeon, he said, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, nature, person, work, doings, and existence of the great God whom he calls his father. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. You know, if I had to summarize this chapter today that's before us, we could do it in this way, just a quick little paragraph as I thought about this and meditated on this chapter in the Bible. The God of this chapter... The God of sacred scripture is a holy and eternal being. He is the preeminent one who is also the creator of all things as well as the authority behind it all. And to him, all other beings, created beings, meaning are accountable. And by implication, he is to be worshiped as the hymn in this chapter indicates. Would you notice again verse 11? Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now before I leave my text this morning, let me add to this by just pointing your attention quickly to the next chapter in the book of Revelation. I'm not read it all to you. But did you know in chapter number five of the book of Revelation, there is another hymn in, in chapter number four, we have the creator's hymn. We have a holy God on his glorious throne. And then in chapter five, we have the redeemer's hymn because there we see the worthy lamb. Do you see those two things? In chapter four, a holy God. Chapter five, a worthy lamb. Look there with me in chapter number five. Look at, look at verse nine and, and 10. And they sang a new song saying, now this one is the hymn to the redeemer, to the lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
For you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then in verse number 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Redeemer's hymn, the lamb who was slain. You know, perhaps you're here this morning, maybe you've come to visit with someone, maybe a member of this church invited you to be here and maybe the things of the Christian faith are somewhat new and novel to you. Perhaps you're just here today sort of checking things out. I I know that happens in a church as the people of God are sharing truth from Scripture out and about in their own circles of influence, people show up and and they have questions, the deepest questions of their soul and, and some believer tells them, hey, if you, if you would come and you would listen to the preaching of the word of God, probably some of those questions would begin to be answered. And so maybe, maybe you're here today as one of those people. Maybe you're not a member of Truth Community Church or, or any church for that matter. Maybe you've never really even heard the things that I'm speaking about today. And what I want you to understand as we look just quickly at the Redeemer's hymn, there's something that stands behind that hymn that makes this hymn amazing. And the thing that stands behind this hymn is the sad news of man in sin. This hymn to the Lamb is a good news hymn, but what stands behind the good news hymn is the bad news. And the bad news, my friend, the Bible declares is that all have come, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The bad news is that there are none righteous, no, not one. All over from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Bible tells us that we are in misery, that we have fallen, that in in Adam we have all fallen, that we are all sinful, we are all depraved, we are all corrupt from head to toe, that there's nothing good in us that commends us to a holy God. Our life is full of corruption. It's full of sin. No one has kept the law of God. No one has kept up the standard of righteousness. We have all fallen short of that. And oh, my friend, I know that's hard to hear for someone to say, you're a sinner. But we are, aren't we? We're sinners. We've transgressed the law of God. We've transgressed the commandments of God. The declaration, the indictment of Scripture is certainly true about our lives, that we are sinners. But oh, this hymn, you are slain. And by your blood, you ransom the people for God. The glory of this hymn, the beauty of this hymn, is that not only have we fallen into sin, but there is a great Redeemer has come to rescue us from our sin. And God is still active and still working His gospel in the earth. The consummation of all things has not happened yet. And so you know what that tells me? That tells me today, if you're here in this church and you've never heard these glorious things, God is screaming out the message to you today that this is the day of opportunity. This is the time to see the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great one who came into the world to to save us and to ransom a people from every tribe and language and people group all over the world. It's a glorious truth, a glorious story that unfolds throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. And you know, with this description of man and the Redeemer, the song that's recorded here in Revelation chapter 5, we conclude this glorious truth. Again, I've already said it. Man has ruined himself by sin. He's a guilty sinner. He can't save himself, but there's a glorious Redeemer who can. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He kept the righteous standard of a holy God. 
He died on the cross, was buried. Three days later, come up out of the grave. He rose from the dead, thereby proving his power to save. And when you take these two chapters of Revelation chapter four and five, one of the great truths that comes to light here in these worshipful hymns is this truth. Don't miss it. Don't miss this truth from verse from chapter four and chapter five. Acknowledgement of the creator, that's chapter number four, is the first step towards trusting in the redeemer in chapter five. You know, we live in a day where so many people claim atheism and agnosticism and all of that. The Bible tells us though there are no such things. God has given proof to all men that he exists. All men know, all men know that God is there. And it's amazing, I'll not take time to read it, our time is running to a close, but if you look at the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul was preaching to pagan people, not Jewish people who had a religious background, but when the Apostle Paul would preach to pagan people, do you know what he would always start out with in his message? The glory of God the Creator. Think about it, when he went to Mars Hill and he began to preach to those people, you have this this idol here to this unknown God. Let me tell you about him. And you know what he told him? He told him what we read in chapter number four, the great creator. And then as he went on in that chapter, as he dealt with those people at Mars Hill, he flipped and then he began to talk about who? Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. Oh, my friend. Have you recognized this great God, the God of Holy Scripture, who is the creator, who is the authority of all things? Have you seen that? Have you seen your disposition and your standing before this great God and your need of the great Redeemer in chapter number five? Here's my message to you today. First, you must look to this God that we've seen in chapter four and see the Holy Creator. And then when you see him, if you see him as you ought to see him, if you see him with the help of the Holy Spirit today, making clear who he is, then you will see yourself by comparison as a great sinner before this holy God. Do you remember Isaiah when he saw the Lord holy and lifted up? What did he say? Oh, I am a man of unclean lips. And that's what we see when we see the glorious God. And when you truly see yourself as a wicked sinner, then you'll be ready to look upon and embrace the merciful Savior. And the message of Scripture is that He will gladly receive you. The Lord Jesus turns none away who come to Him. Come unto me, all you that labor, and I will give you rest, He says. And the beauty of Scripture and its message is that once this happens in your life, you will be transformed and you will, in fact, sing as the anthem of your heart, chapter number five, verse 13. And here you see the two chapters brought together, God the Creator, Christ the Redeemer, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And I pray that when all is said and done, Every single one of us in this room today, on that great day, will in fact be gathered around the throne singing this hymn to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Father, thank you for these glorious revelations of yourself today in this vision that John has recorded for us in sacred scripture. Father, our minds are blown away today when we truly think about the depth of who you are and how you've revealed yourself. And we've only scratched the surface today, Lord. Oh, and Father, we confess this hour our desperate need 
of your gracious Holy Spirit opening up our minds to these truths to help us to truly see. Father, I pray today that saint and sinner alike have seen you on your glorious throne through Revelation chapter number four. Oh, and Father, I pray for some sinner that's here today as they've gazed upon your glory and they've seen your holiness and they've seen your sovereign rule and authority and power and perhaps as they have melted under those truths of who you are, Father, that you would not leave them in despair but that you would lead them on to chapter number five and that they would see the Lord Jesus Christ who did for for sinners what we could never, ever do for ourselves. He accomplished salvation. He accomplished redemption. He delivers sinners. Help them to see salvation today in the Lord Jesus. And Father, for your saints, for those who have experienced that, Lord, I pray that they would be refreshed and revived today in your kindness and in your mercy to them that at the appointed time and at the right hour, your glorious gospel came and sought them out and found them and that you granted to them everything that they needed to repent and to believe the gospel and to close with the Lord Jesus Christ, thereby coming into eternal salvation. And Father, these hymns that are being sung now in heaven, we confess that these are the delights of our heart even now as the people of God. And we long for the day, that great day, when we are, in fact, gathered around the throne singing these praises in your presence. Lord, while we go through our sojourn here on earth, I pray that you would encourage us with other saints and with the preaching of the word of God. Minister to your people on this Lord's day. Give them joy in their soul, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com.